Hey, if you love the rewatchables, we did something cool. Every single action movie we've ever done, we put on a Spotify playlist, which you can search for. Just search for the rewatchables action or go to spotify.link slash rewatchables action. And you can see every action movie we've ever done laid out. We're even doing this for sports movies, comedies, best 1980s, 90s movies, but this will be the first one. So if you've missed anything over the last four years, you can find it right now on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm personal price plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what sounds good after a long day? Ice cream. I love ice cream. Right now is the perfect time to get some. Sonic has half-price shakes every night after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. Just think of it, all that creamy, soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size. Listen, a lot of people like goofy shakes. I like vanilla shakes. You can throw 40 flavors at me. You know what I'm going to order? You know what I love the most? Vanilla shakes. It's perfect because me and my family, at least once a week, we still all get ice cream together when we're together. Grab Sonic Half Price Shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic Drive-Ins. We're also brought to you by the Ringer Podcast Network as well as theringer.com. You can check out uh, all of the Rewatchables archives on Spotify. Four years worth. If you want to see anything from the last 60 days, you can get that on any platform. But the last four years, as we head toward 200 movies, only available on the Spotify archives, which are very easy to find. And you can also find, as I mentioned at the top, all of our action movies on spotify.link slash rewatchables action. Coming up. Your hands are rough, Chris. They don't look like cop's hands anymore. Manhunter, 35th anniversary, next. Somewhere between dreams and reality lies the key to a killer's identity. You ought to know how he's choosing them, don't you? Hunting in that dangerous place is FBI agent Will Graham. What is it you think you're becoming? The closer he gets to the killer, the more deadly the dreams become. Manhunter. Starts Friday at a theater near you. Check local listings. All right, Chris Ryan is here. Sean Fennessy is here. 1986 was when Manhunter came out. We're basically celebrating our 35th anniversary now. It is the second theatrical Michael Mann release. We have quickly run through almost all of the uh, Michael Mann movies. This is the last one, unless we decide to do Ali or Black Hat. Chris, the ending, the Inagata De Vida, I to me, that is like heroin in your veins. I can't imagine a scene that you would like more than that. We're going to get to it in a second, but why do you love this movie? Where does this rank in the Michael Mann rankings for you? This is top three. It's it's some... I mean, Heat is in a, cl- a class of one, and then there's jockeying between uh, Manhunter and Collateral for two for me. And then Miami mm. Vice... Miami Vice is my mistress. You know what I mean? Miami Vice is is the lady I go see, even though I know it's really bad for me. 
Right. Um, no, this movie, uh, and I really want to talk about you know Manhunter in relation to Silence of the Lambs a lot because I think there are kind of like two sides of the rewatchables coin. Like uh, Silence of the Lambs is this really, in comparison, brisk, very entertaining movie, I think. And it, it is like incredibly well made and well told. There are parts of Manhunter that are kind of inscrutable. Like there's parts of where you're like, I don't know what part of America this is set in. But it is so poetic. It is so beautiful. And it bores so deep into you that you can't, you're, you're like Will Graham at the end of this movie. You're like, I got, I got cut deep. Fantasy? Well, I think it's, it's obvious that it's a, a brilliantly made movie by a person who's completely obsessed and it's a movie about obsession. And so it's fascinating in that respect. I'll say it's fun to be on this episode with you guys. Bill, your love for this movie confirms for me that you have the soul of an artist. This is an artist's movie. It's a yes. really fun serial killer movie. It's a good cop movie. But it's, I mean, this is a, this is like an art piece surrounded by serial killer stuff. And I'm sure we'll talk about the colors and the music and the sound. But I mean, this is a really sophisticated, kind of strange movie that also has all the hallmarks of like an entertaining rewatchable. So it's a cool movie to talk about. So you're saying it's an artsy fartsy English lit kind of in college. Somebody's in my it's dorm a real Troy from Reality Bites likes Manhunter more than Silence of the Lambs move. It is. It it really is. For me, it's really hard to separate this movie, and I mean this in a positive, happy way from Miami Vice, because obviously Miami Vice is one of my five favorite shows ever. It's equally as influential as Manhunter is. And it's basically happening simultaneously. Michael Mann does the first two seasons of Miami Vice. Basically, he puts his style, his vision. He's pushing the envelope in all these different ways. And the lead guy in that is Sonny Crockett, who easily just could have been in this movie as Will Graham. Like, they have different jobs, but they're very similar. There's even stuff kind of ripped off from Miami Vice. Like, he's got the one son. He's on the water. He's got to put his family away because they're in danger. There, there's these little things. And then they use, there's six people that were in influential Miami Vice moments in this movie. So yeah. there's overlap all over the place. He's got the Miami Vice, the the Sonny Crockett stubble, Will Graham, same thing. He's kind of breaking down emotionally a little bit. Um, it's just, to me, this is like, he took all the stuff he was doing on Miami Vice, he blew it out, and he made this incredible movie. And I think... One of the reasons I'm surprised it took so long for us to do this is this movie was way more influential than I think I realized. It invents all of this stuff, right? Like, what is an action thriller before this movie? Basically, Thief was about as far as you're pushing the envelope. But for the most part, movies were either action or they were horror. This is, I don't know what this is. This is a new genre. But then, like, you think about the forensic profiling and all, and this is becomes... A huge part of not just TV and movies, but podcasts, true crime podcasts, things like that. I don't know, Chris, did, was there anything like this before this? So I, I think that this film is largely credited with popularizing, popularizing, not serial killers per se, but this type of investigation into serial killers, this criminal profiling, this deeply empathic way of trying to think like a killer. Now but when you say but when you say popularizing though, the movie didn't do well. That's what's so weird about it. It becomes this fanatical cult movie 
that leads to all these things, but also didn't succeed. Which I think is why five years later you can make Silence of the Lambs and people are like, this is great. I never seen anything like this. And it's like, they they do a lot of like the criminal like investigation stuff in Manhunter. A lot of this stuff where he's walking into rooms and he's just like, you wanted them to see you. Like when you first watch this movie, you're just like, what the fuck is happening? I do think that there are some precedents for movies that have like this kind of tone um, like there are a lot of Charles Bronson movies from the 70s sure. that are like action thrillers or and then there's some Burt Reynolds movies that are action thrillers. Clint Eastwood movies, Clint right? Clint Eastwood movies yeah. that are action thrillers. But they don't have this tone. They don't have this like sort of like monomaniacal kind of crazed sense of like everyone is kind of coming apart at the seams. Like it's so high tension and every single person that you see in this movie and obviously especially Will and the Tooth Fairy and this like duality between the profiler and the investigator, like something that is this psychological is, it was really rare. And it's funny that like the way that the profiling stuff became popularized, because even though it is in many ways, exactly the same. And in the case of William Peterson, like literally he played a guy who did this job later. Mm-hmm. The tone of that stuff has nothing to do with this. Like to Chris's point, silence of the lambs, even though it features some of the same characters is a, is a totally different universe in some ways. So this, this kind of stands on its own to me too. Yeah, you, it's funny you mentioned Bronson. The movies that I was thinking of that came out before this that have DNA that we're trying to get to here but are just not as well made or anything, Tightrope with Clint Eastwood, where he's in New Orleans, which is, for the people listening, kind of an interesting movie. It's on HBO Max. It's definitely one of the weirdest movies Clint ever made. I think that and Play Misty for Me are probably the two wild card weirdo movies he made. Um, but in that one, he's investigating this person who's strangling um, prostitutes in New Orleans. Charles Bronson made a movie called Ten to Midnight. Good movie. That I think is actually a good horror movie. It's yeah. with Lisa, my girl Lisa Albacher is in it, uh, who eventually tried to seduce Axel Foley and Beverly Hills Cop couldn't pull it off. <laughs> Axel just wasn't interested. She's lying on the bed. Um, he was too. He was. He was too into Jimmy Russo. Yeah, he's, he's still <laughs> mourning his his lover Russo, but. Uh, but that movie's got a lot of the same elements, right? Serial killer on the loose. Um, it's a little scary, but it, but it's this what he does in this movie, and how artistic it is. It's a real achievement. And what's interesting is it it's he's doing the Red Dragon book, which was a monster book in the mm-hmm. early eighties, nineteen eighty one, I think. And he's trying to adapt that, but really stay true to the book. And um, I think what was horrifying for me was when they did Red Dragon, which is the reason we're doing this podcast. It was on TV the other night and I was watching it. I'm just like, why the fuck did they do this? Why did they make this? Why would they remake Manhunter 16 years after Manhunter when Manhunter was a masterpiece, which led me to watch Manhunter again and then text Chris. (laughs) And Chris was basically like, I've been waiting for this text my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) But which we might as well talk about Red Dragon now. Was Red Dragon a violation to you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing that people have to understand, we talked about this a lot with Silence of the Lambs, is the the rights issues with this Thomas Harris universe are so complicated and involve probably like five or six different De Laurentiis that, you know, one person owns Lecter and one person owns the Clarice Starling story. And then there's like, so there's a lot of different stuff and there's a lot of people exercising their options, making sure they're making movies before like the rights expire and stuff like that. But Red Dragon just sucks. It's a Brett Ratner movie. They took basically a perfect movie 
And no matter how good anybody in it could possibly be, it wasn't going to be Manhunter. I just really want to say quickly before we, we get more into this, another dope movie for people to check out that I think has is a little bit of a building block going into Manhunter is another William Peterson movie called To Live and Die in L.A., mm. which comes out in 85, William Freakin directed. One of the great cop movies of the 80s. I really hope we do it on Rewatchables one day. It's a little bit more kinetic and like verite than Manhunter is, but it has some of the same amazing Wang Chung soundtrack, so deep, like out there, new wave soundtrack, great villain in Willem Dafoe, and a great kind of like, the only way to understand Thief is to think like a thief, I'm going undercover thing from William Peterson. They, that led to one of my favorite Adam Carolla jokes when I worked with Carolla, where he would he had this pitch where it was like, to catch a serial killer, you have to become a serial killer. <laughs> and then it would just be this show about this guy who was a serial killer because he was trying to catch other serial killers. But to live in that in LA, there's an interesting... Michael Mann, William Friedkin thing, which came up with the internet research. I'll just do it now. Michael Mann was so mad about To Live and Die in LA, he sues Friedkin and actually has a plagiarism. You've you've stole from Miami Vice. I'm suing you. Loses the lawsuit. They somehow stayed friends. And then Friedkin was one of the people he thought about for Hannibal Lecter. It's a classic 80s. I don't know if there was cocaine involved. Or <laughs> Fantasy, what's going when are you going to sue me? But we stay <laughs> friends. <laughs> Come How on, do you man. Sue somebody and stay friends and then try to cast them in your next movie. I don't, the mid 80s are off the rails. I don't want to spoil the end of this pod, but I do have my lawyer waiting outside your door, Chris, to serve you as soon as you're done recording. Um, it's really funny, though, because I feel like the, the arc of the Thomas Harris novels and the way that they're adapted is you have this great legacy all the way up till Red Dragon. You have three different filmmakers, all with three very specific spins on the story. You've got, obviously, Michael Mann kicks it off. Then you get Jonathan Demme, the late, great Jonathan Demme. And then you get Ridley Scott with Hannibal, which is a controversial movie and not as good as those other two movies, but does have a lot to recommend it. And I think it's kind of an interesting rewatch in light of having seen these. I started watching it again last night and I was like, wow, this is, it's actually the most Tony Scott-esque Ridley Scott yeah. movie in a lot of ways. Yeah. And then you get Brett Ratner. And Brett Ratner just sucks. Like, he's just not a good filmmaker. And so, in a, aside from the fact that Manhunter did so, like, and really invented a subgenre in so many ways, the idea of revisiting it feels like just such a wasted opportunity. And there's so many great people in that movie. You know, Bill, that cast is so stacked that it's, it's hard to understand why they did that. Yeah, Hoffman is playing the reporter in that. And it's just, it's like wasting a vintage Hoffman year where he could have been making six other movies that he probably would have gotten nominated for an Oscar for and instead he's in that crap. Um, Hopkins is now 11 years older than he was in Silence of the Lambs, but it's a prequel to Silence of the Lambs, including the, uh, the doctor, Anthony Heald, who's 50 pounds heavier and 11 years older, but it's supposed to be earlier. And the whole thing is like, why? Why'd you do this? Ed Norton's doing this weird William Peterson. I don't want to be like William Peterson. And in a lot of ways, I, to me, it made me like Manhunter more. It, I really rebelled against uh, Red Dragon. So um, just quickly on the style stuff, it really starts with Vice, which is weird. There's this movie called Thief of Hearts that uh, I don't think even exists. Uh, it's with Stephen Bauer, who is Manny from Scarface, and David Caruso, and they're these two thieves, and they steal somebody's jewelry, but they steal the lady's diary. I think I told you about this movie, and Stephen Bauer reads the diary and decides he's going to try to win this woman over. But the style of that movie, and then To Live and Die in L.A., and then this movie, 
visually something's happening that I don't feel maybe risky business in 1983 a tiny bit. But other than that, when you're talking about like mainstream bigger movies that also try to look cool, what are, am I missing anything else? Because Risky Business was another one where there's just scenes in that movie that just move differently than an '80s teen movie. I think I think it's worth mentioning Blade Runner, right? Like I think Blade Runner, yeah, you're right. is, is is probably the most visually rich studio genre movie that like people had seen at that time. Like, I mean, obviously there's lots of other examples, but that is like, you know, I feel like we talked a little bit about Blade Runner and Thief with Thief. Blade Runner is like a real page turning moment. We're in a new decade now. We've got new, like there is a different vision for what the world could look like in these Mm. movies. And it's bringing in all this stuff from German expressionism and shit. There's this really great man quote. I just want to drop for people because I think it kind of explains what we're talking about here. When he was talking about Manhunter and he said, it bores me to present the events of the story in a realist style. My approach instead is to conceptualize the elements of the plot, taking into consideration the various torments of the human spirit. My aim is to exteriorize the spiritual in the expressionist manner. And this always leads me to reject realism. Now, I think he eventually embraces realism for later in his career, especially with Mohicans, like even though it's deeply romantic, but like he's, he comes back to realism. But this movie is not realist. You know what I mean? Like in the way that silence is, I think, very realis- realistic and very human. This movie is way more about the construction of compositions and frames to like show you how people are feeling when they won't tell you. Well, that first scene on the beach, which, (sighs) you know, and we talk about this sometimes on the pod where the TVs couldn't properly show how cool some of this shit was. And you had these TVs that were square forever or not clear enough. And now 10 years ago, the TV's round in a shape or whenever it was. And that first scene now on a widescreen, if you have any sort of an HD type of situation going on, it's so fucking cool. It's really amazing. Like, you know, the Farina's sitting one way toward the ocean. Peterson's sitting the other way. He's got the cheesy gray cutoff t-shirt that I know Chris owns. And, <laughs> and, there's that they're sitting on that piece of driftwood and the way man shoots it, it's just like it looks like the most beautiful place on earth. You could be in St. Bart's, you could be in Mexico, you could be you have no idea where you are. It turns out we're in Florida. But uh, but just it's so striking. And right away you're like, whoa. And if you if you remember, Red Dragon starts with Will Graham going to meet Lecter. Mm-hmm. It's the story it's that the he tells his fight kids. Scene. Yeah. yeah. We never see that scene in Manhunter, and we'll get to whether we should have or not, but it just starts with violence. Manhunter doesn't have violence until the end. They intentionally withhold all the violence, which I think Sean's a really smart decision and pretty unique. Totally meditative movie in so many ways. That opening scene, what I thought of when I was watching it last night was in The Insider, there's a scene near the end of the movie when Lowell Bergman is fighting Walking to get the story the on the air. Yeah. And he's on the beach. And it, I guess he's in the Hamptons. We don't really know where he is. And and I remember when we talked about this on the pod, we were like, "Why the hell is he at the beach? Like, why is like did this actually happen? Did Lowell Bergman have a summer home, or did Michael Mann just want to return to the infinite and the nothingness of the ocean? Like that, it, he goes back to it over and over and over again. You know, we see it in we saw it in Thief, same thing. James Caan with his family on the beach, like that is a a space of salvation for yeah, him. Neil talking about the algae, yeah, yes, yeah, and heat. Over and over again, he has these he has these tropes, he has these themes that he loves, and I mean the quote that Chris shared is why I'm I'm like 
I'm ribbing you guys about this being an art movie. I mean, listen to the way Michael Mann talks about this stuff. Like this Thomas Harris book is a is a pretty good book and it's a really good page turner, but I wouldn't say it's like a sophisticated work of art. It's pop fiction. And in the pop fiction, he pulls out these super heavy themes and makes this meditative movie that you're describing, Bill. So it's a really unusual circumstance. Yeah, he does he does some stuff with the cameras. The way he shoots the scene the first time he goes to see Lecter. Yeah. With the white and the bars. But somehow the angles of Lecter, but then the other side of Will Graham, it's exactly the same angle. I don't know how he does it. If you want to know, like if you that you you could teach that that scene in film school. Because if you watch that scene, if you don't know what's happening and you just watch that scene, you you don't know which one of them is in jail. You don't know which one of them is behind bars because every shot of Will Graham, he's closed in by the bars from Lecter's perspective. So Will is caught. Even though Lecter's in jail, Will's the one who's caught. Will can't escape this guy and this guy's voice in his head. And he knows that he has to basically embrace that if he wants to catch, if he wants to catch the tooth fairy. There's a lot of mirrors and glass and William Peterson staring into a mirror. Then the killer finally breaking the mirror with his fist and using the piece of shards. And then Peterson running through the giant glass door slider in the key scene. But over and over again, it's, you know, he really tries to make the point of Will Graham is actually kind of losing it. One of the most, I didn't have this in most rewatchable scenes, but that really effective scene in the grocery store with his son. Oh, oh I yeah. That scene. I got when that scene. That's just going, Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, here's here's what happened to me. I kind of lost my mind. <laughs> and he's just matter of factly telling his son this whole story in the serial. Is that but, how you tell Ben about Grantland? You guys are walking. <laughs> you guys are walking through Gelson's. Yeah, I'm like so. So Roger Goodell. And Ben's like, how'd just, you get fired from ESPN? And he's like, actually, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't get fired. It was a mutual. But here's the thing, Roger Goodell, and I, you know, maybe I got carried away. I kind of lost my mind. The Patriots. Um, yeah. So it, everything that's laid out, everything that's shot, the way he does the story. The fact that you can watch this movie nine times and then the 10th time see three other things you didn't really notice. You could argue this is the best movie he's ever made. I personally, I'm always going to be loyal to Heat. But um, from Fennessy's point of like how artistic this is, it's either this or Heat, I would say. Right? I, I, I mean, as not the... I'm not the man expert that you guys are. I still think Heat is the most purely enjoyable movie that he made. Um, it kind of hits every theme. It's really exciting. There's big action set pieces. You've got romances. You've got these two iconic actors going against each other. But this is like the concretization of the Michael Mann thing. You know, like all the ideas that we talked about in Thief, this is where he's like, this is who I am. Now, I'm not as big of a Miami Vice fan, so I know that a lot of that stuff was being forged, like you're saying a couple of years earlier, Bill. But you couldn't put a movie like this on network television. You know, this is something that is way beyond that, both kind of intellectually from a violence perspective. I mean, the Tooth Fairy is a, you know, a pretty fucked up character. That's a yeah. very intense serial killer figure in a movie. So I don't know if it's, and I don't even know if it's necessarily the most rewatchable of his movies because there's so much of it that is just Will Graham staring at a screen. I think that the first two thirds of it are incredibly rewatchable. I think once you get into Francis Dollarod's dating life, it slows down a little bit. Yeah, you know, I think just as a rewatch, like personally, like there's a version of this movie that's just nine minutes of pure Farina, 
that I think is maybe the best American film ever made. <laughs> it's just fucking Farina being like, get me a chopper. The next thing's smoking. Uh, like, then there is like the, the Will Graham and the FBI doing the hardcore investigation. And then there is an hour of like, what what would a serial killer's first date with a blind lady look like? And like, just kind of like, once you get to Inagata de Vida, it gets back ramped up again. But I think in rewatchability terms, it's more of like a once every two years thing for me, even though those are like going to church. Man, he first of all got the rights, but then he started talking to this incarcerated serial killer named Dennis Wayne Wallace, who was a paranoid schizophrenic who'd become obsessed with the woman he met briefly and started killing other people to save her and was convinced that Inagata de Vida had special meaning to him. And mm-hmm. that's how that song ended up in there. But man really threw himself in this like he does with anything. And there's a little bit of parallel with him and Will Graham where I think man finishes this movie and it doesn't do that well. And you look at his career after this, it's a bizarre IMDb because he's out of Miami Vice he basically helps launch Crime Story, mm-hmm. directs like one episode of that. Then he does L.A. Takedown, which was a TV movie that eventually became Miami Heat, which or Miami Vice, which he he basically says now was my trial test run for yeah Takedown what becomes I Heat. Do with Heat yeah yeah right. but doesn't make another movie until Mohicans, which was uh, fall of '92. So we have this guy who made this incredible movie that I think has become one of the most respected cult movies of the 80s, maybe even the 80s and the 90s combined, then doesn't work again for six years. And I wonder, like, Chris, you're the number one Michael Mann expert, but, like, did the lack of success of this movie maybe send him in a tailspin a little bit? I'm not sure in terms of his personal, like, relationship to filmmaking, but I think that he's somebody who is only going to make the movie he wants to make. And we're kind of in this zone right now with him where five years ago he made Black Hat. He was supposed to make a Ferrari uh, biographical film, but uh, I think that the Christian Bale, Matt Damon movie also happened. There was like a bunch of competing Ferrari movies at a time. So that never really got anywhere. I think he was supposed to make a Vietnam miniseries for FX. I'm not sure what the state of that is. It was the the Mark Bowden book who in 1968. And now I think he is working on, although I don't know if he's directed every episode of this Tokyo crime show for HBO. So he's like working on stuff, but I think he's somebody who does not make something unless it's exactly what he wants to make and he gets control over it. And so you will have five or six, seven year gaps here like you do before he gets to to make Mohicans. Now, when he goes back and makes Mohicans, he gets a huge budget. He gets Daniel Day-Lewis. He moves to the mountains in North Carolina and everybody loses their mind on the set because he's got them pretending like it's actually the colonial era. But like, you know, he, he something, he's not like the most prolific guy. Sean, do you wish he was like Soderbergh where in like 1989, he just made 48 hours, the 48 hour sequel, just spent four months on it, moved on, just crafted it and just kind of kept going. Well, I do think it would be fun. We talked about this with Spike with Inside Man. Would, would it, it would be fun if he took a genre gig, if he just took a gig where he was like, what I will do is take all of my skills on a script that I didn't write and see what I can do with it. I do think one time it would be neat if he did that. I mean, have we talked, have we mentioned Luck and his involvement in, yeah, in right. the TV show Luck? I right. mean, that's another thing that he did that was short-lived and he, I think he only directed the pilot, the pilot. But, but was a producer of that show that also was in many ways an amazing show and obviously the circumstances under which it didn't continue were unfortunate, but... For horses, yes. Yes, yeah. for horses. Yeah. Um, and I do think he's directing multiple episodes of Tokyo Vice, that show you're talking yeah. about, Chris. So that'll be exciting to see, but... 
I don't know. I, I, how can you not respect a guy who's like, I only want to do what I want to do, you know? And the only thing that matters to me is making my best version of that thing. There's so few people in Hollywood who can operate that way these days. So I dig it. That yeah, being said, would it have been cool if he made Halloween 5? Yeah, it would have been fucking awesome. <laughs> right. It's, 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 you know what a good comparison for man's filmography is? Is Ridley Scott's. Where Ridley Scott makes a movie every 14 months basically. And some of them are good and some of them are not so good. And then sometimes the not so good movies wind up being really good when you rewatch them or like way better than you remembered them. Michael Mann is just like a closer to like once every four or five years, he's going to get something off the ground. It's like, would you rather have the Ridley Scott career where you have some, some real valleys here and there? Or would you rather have the Michael Mann career where, you know, people freak out every time it's an event when you release something? Although I guess Black Hat, not not so much. Well, that's been the sad thing about the last 10 years is that Public Enemies and Black Hat were just a disappointment. You know, they just were not up to par with the rest of his stuff. And so if you're only going to get two movies every 10 years and those are the two movies you get, it is a little bit disappointing. There's a Black Hat click out there on on Twitter especially where they like they sometimes I get tweets that are like here's what you don't understand about this masterpiece and I'm like is this how I sound to other people when I talk about <laughs> Miami Vice? <laughs> uh, Black Hat we might end up doing at some point on this podcast. It's it's going to take me five more times to understand what happened in the first hour and a half and once I solve that Manhunter's like that a little bit too. It's confusing unless you've seen it 10 times. There is some, especially when it just basically shifts the last third of the movie. All of a sudden, yeah. you're in a different movie and it's like, well, wait a second. Now I'm with the serial killer, which I can't really remember seeing. The other thing we should just mention before we take a break is uh, the serial killer in this movie is unlike any serial killer, any killer we've had in a movie. It's just nobody was like this. It was people wearing masks. It was horror franchises or it was Jack Nicholson in The Shining losing his mind. This is just like a fucking weirdo. The first time we see him, he's got the stocky mask over two thirds of his face. It's absolutely terrifying. And then we get to see him in a normal life having a job. He's six foot five. He's a fucking freak. And Tom Noonan is so good at this guy that I actually think it hurt his career. It was impossible to see him and not think of this guy. And even like when he pops up in uh, Heat, you're just like, Tom Noonan. Like, he, 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 yeah. It, it, this happened a little bit to Ted Levine too with James Gum, where it was just like the role kind of overpowered how you watched him and anything else, right? Yeah. But it's not like you, like, it's not like Tom Noonan was going to play Lloyd Dobler. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, Tom Noonan is an odd looking dude. And he, I, well, he looks like he's like six five. I, I'm not yeah, sure he, how he tall is he six, actually five, is. Yeah. yeah, and uh, you know, I think he was always going to be more of that like New York or Chicago kind of underground art scene rather than. You would have said that about Peter Boyle though, and then Peter Boyle ended up doing every ten years of Everybody Loves Raymond. Yeah, I mean, I guess if Tom Noonan had been in like a, a like King of Queens, with, like I guess I would have been proved wrong, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, Damn it! Why didn't we get that? <laughs> Season nine, episode five, he just loses it and starts killing everyone on the show. We should just recap like Tom Noonan in the Affleck part in the way back. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like, the the other thing is aside from him, you know, seeming like such a freak, this is really one of the first movies I can think about that thought that considered the psychological history of a serial killer because mm -hmm. of what Peterson's job was that he explains like this guy was likely abused. This guy comes from a, a, a difficult upbringing, which has created these violent and distorted tendencies. And, you know, sometimes you would have like a character at the end of Psycho come in and kind of like briefly explain what's going on with a villain to kind of like put an end cap on it. 
But this movie, it kind of creates like empathy for the most awful person in the world. And that also was kind of unique in and of its time. Yeah, there's a couple different points. I mean, Joan Allen wanting to touch his face. Then them sitting, he's like, hey, let's have a date. I'm going to take the blind girl back to my house. I'm going to watch some home movies of the next family I think I'm going to kill. But she won't know because she can't see. She He gets so excited watching it. She gets turned on. She feels his pheromones. They start going at it. Then we see him crying in the bed because he's had this emotional moment. Then she's on the deck. He walks out. It's basically like, can I? Can we order some Postmates? You want me to get an omelet? <laughs> it's like it's turning into this domestic. I have thing. 150 questions about that date. <laughs> oh well. Also, how did she walk out on the deck when she was blind? They're in St. Louis. Where, yeah. Where's there a deck? Right. Good point. Um, but then it all leads to him in the car waiting for her. Semi creepy, but like. You know, he's trying to turn his life around in the relationship. And the car starts pulling up and she and he has that weird smile he does. Oh my God. Where he's like, Oh, hey, she's here. And then he sees the guy get out of the car and he just flips and that's it. But you do feel like kind of invested in the guy. It's really weird. I don't know how he pulls this off. It's there's genius. no other serial killer where I'm kind of like rooting for him to get the girl. It's the exact thing you were just describing Bill where he because he bifurcates the movie and the second half of the movie is essentially Dollar Hyde's movie. You get the same experience that you got with Peterson where mm-hmm. you're like we meet this guy, we see that he's a little bit damaged, but hey, who knows? Maybe he's into some weird shit like serial killer profiling or serial killing. Let's just see where he comes from. Let's learn a little bit more about him. Let's see that he's in a relationship with a woman that makes him seem more human and he gives as much time and as much like of the movie's energy to that character. And because he does that, obviously the tooth fairy is a psychopath and should be killed set to the beautiful sounds of iron butterfly. But he just, he creates this sense that it's like, we deserve to see as much of this guy as we deserve to see of William Peterson, which is so cool. But you know, what's funny about everything you laid out, which you laid out perfectly, except for one part, we meet him with the stocky mask on and then he sends a guy on fire on a rolling chair down a parking lot. And then we come back to him after that and we're like, oh, I hope this guy figures it out. <laughs> nice if he had a girlfriend. I'm like, like, what are we doing? It's like a Jedi mind trick. Tough day for tabloid journalism. <laughs> Freddie Freddy is not the greatest ambassador for the media. So this movie, $50 million budget, made $8.6 million. Barely made even half of it. Mixed reviews. I couldn't find a Roger Ebert Manhunter review that was in the moment. Now, maybe maybe my research skills were not great, but um, unfortunately, I could not find his take on it. I'm guessing belatedly when he did like his your guy, your guy, Sean, he would go back and revise history about how he felt about movies if they became cool. So maybe he liked it retroactively, but I couldn't find anything. Coming up, we do the categories right after this. This episode is supported by State Farm. Think about your first reaction after you have an accident. What do you do? You scream, oh no, or man, why did this happen? On the flip side, let's say you buy a new car or you lease a new car. Get in there and it smells great and you're like, man, this is awesome. But just remember, really the only words you need to remember are like a good neighbor. State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, 
file claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. Spring comes with a lot of chores because, you know, spring cleaning. One thing you can clean up right away, your phone bill. Just switch to Mint Mobile. They have unlimited talk, text, data plans for $15 a month when you buy a three-month plan. $15 a month. That's like you can subscribe to two movie channels for that. I mean, what a great deal. Also, super easy to switch plans. Everyone gets so intimidated by, oh my God, I don't know if I should switch my plan. It's not that hard. To get this new customer offer, go to mintmobile.com slash rewatch. That's us. That's mintmobile.com slash rewatch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month for a first three-month plan only. Speeds slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Before we get to the categories, I looked it up during the break and Roger Ebert gave Red Dragon three and a half stars. <laughs> what? Wrote very, very wow. uh, flatteringly about it. It's unclear if you ever saw Manhunter. Uh, most rewatchable <laughs> scene. The, the uh, nominees, the opening scene with Peterson and Farina. If you can't look anymore, I understand. Don't try to run a game down on me, Jack. If I really didn't need you to come back, I wouldn't ask. This guy's on a lunar cycle. I have three weeks and a few days until the next full moon. We have a better chance to get him fast if you help. It's pretty much everything you want from a scene, Chris. Was anything missing? Yeah, this is how you talked me into doing the ringer. <laughs> Maybe Embiid shooting threes from in the distance, CGI'd in, would be the last piece for you? It's a piece of driftwood. It's William Peterson and Dennis Farina being Chicago as shit, even though they're in Captiva, Florida. Yeah. And it's just like immediately... The thing I love about this movie, Silence of the Lambs brings you into this world very well because... Clarice is the fish out of water character, right? So like she's brought into this world that she's just, and you're being introduced to it with her. With Will Graham, he's recovering from this world. So you're always playing catch up with these characters. And this scene is great because it's just like, what ha you're like, what happened to Will Graham that he's so fucked up that he needs to just be super tan hanging out with his wife and kid in, in Captiva. And the, the Farina thing just completely draws him back in. Well, also, it starts out in the happiest, lightest, bluest place you could ever be in. Mm -hmm. And then at about the hour 20 mark, now it's just darkness everywhere. Everything is dark. Every room, it's dark outside constantly. And then at the end, it comes back and all of a sudden the sun's back out again. I don't know. It, se it seems intentional. My favorite part of that scene is when um, Kim Grease's character starts walking towards Farina and Farina says, hey, Molly. And she just looks at him and doesn't say anything. <laughs> But then hangs out with him. Yeah. And they have dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Sean, who was Dennis Farina for New York? Who was the real life cop turned actor turned the funniest person to watch in any movie ever? Yeah, yeah. That, that New York didn't have that version, right? Uh, no. You know, I, I was texting with Chris last night about Farina because obviously we're both obsessed with him. Um, can I tell a very quick Farina story? Yeah. So yes. I interviewed him in, uh, in 2011 um, before I came to work for you, Bill. And we got on the phone. I was working at GQ at the time. And I, I wanted to have the interview where he was like, me and him are going to talk for two hours. 
and I'm going to get the whole life story. And so I, I opened with a very obvious question about him, um, you know, working on Thief and then Crime Story. And I was like, can you just like, t- let's start from the beginning. You know, let, like, let's start. When did you meet Michael Mann? And he goes, ah, Sean, I'm not telling that fucking story. I've told that story a hundred times. God damn it. I'm not talking about it. Okay. And I was like, <laughs> so rattled. Holy oh my God. Totally I would have thr- just drowned myself. <laughs> I was so all thrown off my game. And then the rest of the interview, we just, I think we just talked about the movie that he was promoting, which was not at all what I wanted to do. And uh, he was a, he was a powerful dude. Wow. I mean, he was a real life former cop and you're a guy who grew up in a family of cops. So we're still somehow intimidated by him. Uh, well, I thought I was going to be able to relate to him. I thought I could throw a little New York on the voice and he would, he would relate to me. And he was like, listen, you fucking clown child media member. I don't respect you. <laughs> Go read the papers. I had this in what stage the best, but we can do this now. This was really, this was the Renaissance is yeah. all happening here. It starts with Miami vice where he's Lombard, which was one of the five best episodes. He's this, this kind of evil crime boss that then pops back up in the last episode of season one where he starts working with Crockett and Tubbs. And that episode's amazing. He's amazing in it. And you watch, you just see him in that and you're like, oh, it totally makes sense. This guy would be in some, you know, really memorable movies. Goes from that to Manhunter, does Crime Story, and then everything peaks with Midnight Run. Mm-hmm. Which we cover in the rewatchables before, but then he he's been in other ones. Like he was in Out of Sight. He was J Lo's J Lo's dad in that, and he just keeps popping up. And it was always great to see him. And I'm with you. There's he's a unicorn. They needed to make there's ten no more, Boston version of him. They needed to make ten more Elmore Leonard movies for him. Just and put him in every single one of them. Love him and Get Shorty. Yeah. Love him and Snatch. He's he's just a great crime movie figure. Plays a great cop. Plays a great villain. Sydney. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> get, get a cream a, soda. Do get some a glass fucking of thing. milk. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. m- more rewatchable. We might have to do the midnight rerun. <laughs> I'm down. <laughs> Was that just me and you when we did that? Yeah, I think so. We maybe we just do the midnight rerun and we invite two other people and just break that down again. I I could easily run that back. Um, next rewatchable scene. Will goes to the victim's house. Yeah. Intruder cut Charles Leeds' throat as he was rising, then shot Mrs. Leeds. Bullet entered right of her navel and lodged in her lumbar spine, but she died of strangulation. Moderate elevation of serotonin and marked increase of free histamine level in gunshot wound indicates she lived at least five minutes after she was shot. All her other injuries are post-mortem. Direction and velocity of blood stains on east wall indicate arterial spray. Even with his throat cut, Leeds tried to fight because the intruder was moving to the children's room. Which is such a harrowing scene and nothing happens, but the whole time you're convinced like the killer's somewhere in there. The way they do it, it's so unsettling. And then he's doing the weird William Peterson thing, talking in the recorder. It's the bathroom. I think he went in here. He's just like muttering to him. He's monologuing it basically. What, what do you like about that scene, Chris? Well, it's how I break down tape when I watch get basketball, you know, I sit, there, sit there with a tape recorder. I'm like, Danny green, but why did he want that corner three? Yeah. He was tired that night. The passing lanes. <laughs> Just always sees the passing lanes. Like nobody else. That's good. You should do it that way. I think that's how you should watch basketball. And games. just like upload that in, as, as the answer. No, Actually, you, I got to be honest. If you told me that's how Rosillo watched basketball games, I wouldn't be shocked. <laughs> <Let's>, <laughs> oh my God. I still had a little recorder who's just <laughs> buttery comments into it. Corner action coming off a pin down. 
<laughs> I bet he's tried it. Look, the the thing is, is that like even even in '86, but if you if you're watching this movie for the first time now, you've seen hundreds of movies and TV shows where like this is the best cop, this is the best investigator. It's hard to like actually make that seem to be the case. You know what I mean? Most of the times, it's like this guy's hard driving; he'll do whatever it takes. But Will is actually showing you how he is going to put himself in the in the mindset of the guy who did this crime. And it really comes to fruition when he, you can tell he's holding back a little bit and it really comes to fruition when he goes to his hotel room. Yeah. Um, next one, Graham versus Lecter. I call this Graham versus Lecter one. Yeah. Like the Ali Frazier one. You want to know how he's choosing them, don't you? I thought you might have some ideas. Why should I tell you? You get to see the file on this case. And there's another reason. Pray tell. But you might be curious to see if you're smarter than the person I'm looking for. Then by implication, you think you're smarter than me since you caught me. No. I know that I'm not smarter than you. Then how did you catch me, Will? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. We talked about it at the top, but all the shit they do in this scene is out of control. This is really one of the great... This is one of the best Michael Mann scenes. Just period. In any movie he's done. Culminating with, if you don't think you're smarter than me, then how did you catch me? You had disadvantages. What disadvantages? You're insane. That exchange is unbelievable. And and Lecter's like, ah, good point. I am insane. You're right. So like the Brian Cox thing, man, I, I, I personally, I understand like it's sacrilegious. Hopkins is Lecter. Like Hopkins is so incredible in, in silence. I'm not taking away from that. There's something a little bit more. <sighs> yes, Chris, go for, just fucking go for it, Say man. It. I, I had this. Uh, I had this up for later, but just this is do the it right now, take. Man. He is. He's at once scarier and more realistic as as Lecter. And when he says to, to Graham, when he goes, "Dream much, Will." Uh, you you fucking kidding me? Like you, you, that is the scariest thing Lecter says throughout any of these movies. Is when this dude's like, "I own your head." How about smell yourself as he's yes. leaving? <laughs> smell yourself. Just throwaway line. Hopkins would have. Look, Hopkins is amazing in Silence of the Lambs. We did that as a pod. All of us thought that's a tour divorce. We all thought he should have won the Oscar. Cox is, there's stuff Cox is doing with the Lecter thing that is just less cartoonish and creepier. I think, Fennessy, you're on this side, it sounds like. 100%. I mean, it's, it's, they're basically two different characters in a lot of ways. The Cox character, I read that man told him to play him like an English schoolboy, mm-hmm. which he does. He's like, He's mischievous, but not in a playful way, in a dangerous way. Like, he might hurt you. And Lecter is scary, quote-unquote, scary. But there's something... It's become too, it's become too much of a pop-cultural load-bearing yeah, fa- The force. fava beans and candy, yeah. 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 And Cox is doing something where you, you genuinely think he might... He, he might send the Tooth Fairy to kill Will Peterson. Like, he, you know, that, that could happen. The other thing is that with Hopkins, and it, it, it once it becomes kind of calcified as the performance that he's giving, and everybody is sort of like doing jokes about it, it you can't really separate the the legacy of the performance from the performance itself. The Cox version of Lecter is a guy you like wouldn't be shocked to see at like a restaurant. You know what I mean? Like he seems like a guy who is incredibly smart. Whereas Lecter, it, you're like if you spoke with Anthony Hopkins's Hannibal Lecter once. Why would you think he was anything else but a serial killer? Yeah, it's a good point. I really like that scene. I think that scene's awesome. It's I don't know what the top five scenes of Michael Mann's career are, but it has to be 
on that list. Well, there's another one coming up that's in the top five too. The airplane scene I have as a rewatchable, just because that's in the wrong hands in the mid eighties, that scene's a disaster where he's on the airplane dream sequence. And it goes from the dream sequence right to the photos of everybody with their eyes cut out and the little girl sitting next to him. Like, ah, Bobby! like it, it, that scene is weirdly uh, terrifying. But just imagine I'm in that seat in the aisle seat with my daughter next to me. And all of a sudden there's this fucking weirdo with all these photos. How do you explain that after? But Hey, sorry about that. Uh, so I'm, I work for the FBI. I'm just, Try to catch this guy, but I like that scene. Can't believe FBI is flying Will Graham coach all yeah. over the country to track a Especially since killer. every line Farina has is, seems to be like bragging about whatever piece of <laughs> yeah. airline he's got. He's like, I got yeah. the Lear jet. It's gassed up. We'll get you there in an hour. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the killer torturing Freddie, we have to put as real. It's not going to win, but it's just we have to mention that scene. Do you see? Look at the screen. William Blix, the great red dragon, and the woman clothed in the rays of the sun. Do you see? Yes. Mrs. Leeds, do you see? Yes. Mrs. Jacoby, do you see? Yes. The next family as they will look when I go to visit them. Do you see? Yes. Really good. The, in Red Dragon, which I finally stopped watching because I got mad, but I did get through this scene when he's torturing Philip Seymour Hoffman. I got to say, Philip Seymour Hoffman's amazing in that scene. He's like completely terrified, horrified, and Ray finds he does the tattoo thing with his back, which they do not have in this movie, and I actually thought it was effective. That's what made me stop watching it because I kind of enjoyed the scene. I'm like, what the fuck? No, you're not. I, no, Brett Radner, no. <laughs> and I just turned it. Um, the tiger scene? Oh, my God. So good. Joan Allen blind petting the sedated tiger and Noonan's in the background making the same face that Chris made during the Philly special during the Super Bowl. (laughs) 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 His head tilted back. Uh, That seems just really cool and it's a real tiger? Yes. Sedated tiger. I did some research to see if animals were harmed in the making of this film or whatever, but apparently you can sedate tigers like that and just do it. Yeah, but, Michael Mann, not a great history of of, of animal with animals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if he comes on the re reheat, we're probably not going to bring up animals too. Um, the Will figures everything out scene, which is corny, but I still like it. Which Where he's when watching Jack's watching films. him, yeah, and Jack yeah, and, and he figures and out Farina's the film in the background, and and he's just like, and it, it takes him. It just feels. I had this in picking nits. Might as well do it now. I just feel like you're the best at this. It took you two months to figure out. Maybe this dude was watching different home movies of the families, and that's how maybe we should go check out who manufactured the home movies. You're you're the Michael Jordan of criminal profiling. This took you two months. I don't know. I will say I had been back pocketing that scene to talk about. That's how Chris breaks down tape, and then Chris got way out in front of it. Like I had an Embiid joke all lined up, yeah. and then Chris just jumped right in there. It's tough. It's really tough. I do like that scene. It's not the best scene, but uh, and the, Peterson, we'll, we'll litigate Peterson in a second. Then the uh, the ending, which is going to be my pick, where the movie just completely goes haywire. It's an unbelievable five minutes, and that's my pick. So tell me if I'm crazy. You don't. You didn't say the scene that I was going to say. I mean the Lecter, the Lecter Graham first cell scene. 
that's like in a class by itself. My most rewatchable scene is definitely the note relay that the FBI runs mm. where all the different experts work on the note and they're running up and down the hallways. And he's like, you're so sly. You're so sly, but so am I. And then they have like the conference. Like, that thing is, that is incredible watching like all of them marshal their 1980s tech to figure out what's the missing text in between these two, two pieces of toilet paper. Scale counts on core size of the hair match the blonde hair found in the Jacobis. That note was written by your man. Aside from the hair, three blue grains, dark flecks, went to Brian's end. The grains are commercial granulated cleanser with chlorine from the cleaning man. Several particles of dried blood, but not enough to type. You like the conference room because it's basically the prototype for 15 years of CSI shows. That's right. It's true. That scene with Chris Elliott becomes, <laughs> yes. what, 300 episodes of CSI, basically? <laughs> yes. That's such a good call. It's true. What do you have for most rewatchable, Sean? It's, it's got to be Lecter and Will Graham. Yeah. Graham Lecter one. Yeah, i i like the I like the ending. The last That's ending. My, I I really like the last twenty minutes of this. If it's on, I'm just watching it. You're such an artiste, man. The, the ending is so interesting. It's left like all bank this bill weird <laughs> montage. You know, new wave cutting and editing. Like it's it's really odd. You know, I, I think one of the reasons why the movie is like not a hit is because while it is a kind of exciting ending, it's weirdly unsatisfying because it's very artistic. It's very unusual. Him running toward the slider window, whatever the fuck that is, and his and uh, Dollarhide's head jerking up, and then you just see him like slow motion, like he's like Rich Eisen running the forty yard dash, and he goes through. What if he jumped through and he just was like that was metal and he just bounced off? There? <laughs> I was thinking that there could have been an amazing Naked Gun movie, basically oh, yeah. just parroting every part of this movie where. He's running in, boom, bounces off it. Um, all right, what's age the best? We mentioned the the blend of cutting edge forensic science and criminal profiling. Um, look, this just didn't happen before. I remember, I think I was in college, maybe at maybe right after somebody wrote a book called Mind Hunter. Mm-hmm. Remember that? And became, it became like a became best, 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 best seller. And it was somebody who did this for a living, and it was like how he broke down. And I think I read that book. It was one of those times where I read the entire book in one sitting. I was just like, and it was like, what is this world? I'm so fat. And there just wasn't a lot of stuff out there. And now all of a sudden, there's it's the opposite. There's a glut. There's documentaries left and right. There's podcasts left and right. There's 17 different CSI ripoffs. But I got to say, until the mid-90s, there just wasn't anything. So you just kind of glommed onto this stuff, but Manhunter was at the forefront of it. Chris, I have Red Seven's heartbeat as what stage the best. <laughs> yeah. Do you have a counter? No, I mean, I I don't think heartbeat. so. Heartbeat. <laughs> heartbeat. So this is gonna feel my heartbeat. Do you think that oh. Demi <laughs> saw this scene and did uh goodbye horses off of it? Do you think he was inspired by the vibes of that of that montage for the Goodbye Horses <laughs> scene? <laughs> I, um, I feel like the song call out is the Prime Movers song, right? That was good too. Strong as I am, that's what the pan flute at the beginning. That's yes, a, that's right. The, that's when she's got. Her I like the, the soundtrack tiger. in this movie. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, the Beach House is what's aged the best. Filmed in Sanibel Captiva, Florida, a yeah. place that uh, Chris owns a third home in. <laughs> He's planning on retiring there. The beach house is my my favorite artist's house in Captiva. It's Robert Rauschenberg's house, the late Robert Rauschenberg, but it's his it's his beach house. 
so this is a semi-island off kind of, I guess, Fort Myers would be the closest if you're just going by baseball yeah, spring like, training cities. It's off the Gulf. Yeah. So. Yeah. Very, very small population, a uh, little underground. And as Chris and I were texting about it last night, Chris admitted that he loves Florida and wants to settle down there at some point. <laughs> I did. What, what I learned last night. Chris Ryan, huge Florida guy. <laughs> CR, you've done some time down in Florida. What do you yeah, love about it? Yeah, that's the thing is like, I feel like I had a lot of formative experiences growing up, going down to West Palm Beach and then going down to Naples for a little while. Yeah. Well, I feel like your complexion and also, you know, your your body, your physical presence is really like well suited to the beach. Yeah. Also, I'm 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 all for business. You know what I mean? Business <laughs> is it's keeping businesses open. I told CR my dream is for my son to go to Rollins so I could just make random Florida trips. It's in Winter Park. It's near the WWE complex. I, I'd be so good with that. My buddy Gus went there. Uh more what's age the best? Tom Noonan. Lecter's quote, and if one does what God does enough times, one will become as God is. That would have been an amazing senior yearbook quote that just would have freaked everybody out. It's like the the person everyone was afraid was going to commit a crime in high school has that as a quote. You're like, all right, cool. We're not inviting him to the graduation. Uh, the colors. Brian Cox. The fact that Brian Cox then morphed into Brian Cox. And I feel like Brian Cox... I can't think of another actor who at, over the years just is like, it, there's like five Brian Coxes. We have like 1980s Brian Cox. You have like 1990s Brian Cox. So you have the succession Brian Cox, which has no relation at all physically, looks wise, anything to the other Brian Coxes. He's a great actor. He was able to have like three or four different iterations of his career. There's like a time period where he's like really hammy, like uh, swords and shields and sandals, epics, Brian Cox. Then there's yeah. like, he's in some incredible, I mean, he's in this, uh, when is, um, what's that Ken Loach movie, Sean, with Francis McDormand that he's in? Like, is that Hidden Target? Or like, what, what's the name of that movie? Oh, geez. I don't remember the name of it. He's in a really cool, like thriller with Francis McDormand in the early 80s. Like, he's he's a great actor, man. There's some other people that have had this happen to them, right? Like John Voight oh, hidden agenda. in the mid-90s became character actor John Voight and was just like, it was like he'd been replaced by a different John Voight. Christopher Plummer, when he became old Christopher Plummer, he just had no correlation to the other Christopher Plummers. But Brian Cox, I do feel like he's had like four incarnations. He has this amazing ability to play both the m most evil person on the planet and also, like, the sweetest person on the planet. You know, his performance in 25th Hour is just one of my favorites of all time Yeah, as the father. And he's also, like, he's so creepy in L.I.E. I don't know if you guys have ever seen L.I.E. Um, he's really good as, like, the, like basically, like, the middleman in the Bourne movies. Yeah, yeah. With Joan Allen. Mm -hmm. He was great in Shallow Hal. No. <laughs> um, Chris, what's age the best? The phrase, time is luck. <laughs> used by Molly when talking to Will. What other Michael Mann movies have relied on a character saying time is luck to another character? Uh, is that in Collateral? Does Vincent say that to Jamie Foxx's character in Collateral? So that was not in my research. Okay. It was uh, Neil McCauley says it to Edie and he... Yeah, yeah. Gong Lee's character says it to our guy oh, Sonny in the Miami Vice right. remake. That's right. I knew I knew it was one of those. Yeah. <laughs> Three different movies. Michael Mann pulls off the time is luck trope with, some, this is why with somebody he's the saying best. that. He's the I fucking best. love it. I love when he runs it back. He's just like, that worked. I'm running it back. Let me ask you guys an important question. What the hell does that mean? Time is luck. <laughs> Sean, it's time is luck, baby. Time is luck. It's it means when you meet somebody at the right time, that's luck. I don't I don't know. <laughs> 
Well, guess when he stopped using it? When he made Luck, the TV show. It turned out time wasn't luck. Time sometimes isn't lucky. Uh, my my nominee for What's Age the Best, this is my vote, was the Miami Vice peripheral casting, which I mentioned earlier. Includes Kim Greist, who's William Peterson's girlfriend, plays Crockett's girlfriend in season one in an amazing episode Chris at some point when I'm when I'm gonna retire four years from now the last six months I want to just do season one rewatchables Miami Vice I'm here then for I'm you. gonna retire okay I walk off in the sunset after that um Captiva King Grace plays Crockett's girlfriend and he's and she's obviously very good looking she's got a good job she's got a really cool house he starts sleeping over there he starts losing his edge that's right they have a stakeout <laughs> him and Tubbs doesn't show up Tubbs gets beaten up, leading to an amazing doorbell rings at Kim Grease's house. Crockett goes to answer it, opens the door slow-mo. There's Tubbs, takes off the sunglasses. His face is all banged up. Cut by the Don Johnson look away. Kim Greased. So they used her. Farina, who's the, the, the biggest mob boss in season one, Lombard, Michael Talbot, who was on the show as Zito, the Zito Swiatek, the two goofball. Yeah, isn't he the real cops? estate agent? He's the real estate agent. Yeah. Yeah. I thought I was going to unload this turkey. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Freddie, the reporter, was played by Stephen Lang, who was in the episode Evan, which was considered by a lot of people to be the best Miami Vice episode ever. Crockett's old partner who comes back. That's uh, That was the a lot of good Jan Hammer music in that one. What season is that? That's season one. Um, Crockett's original partner in the Miami Vice pirate, uh, pilot was one of the people in that scene you mentioned when the conference, when they're, when they're yeah. trying to decipher the letter, that's the guy who sells out Crockett and leads to, uh, the sergeant getting shot or Jimmy Smith's getting shot. And then last but not least, the Argentinian assassin from Return of Calderon yes. is in this movie as like a good guy. He's in one team, but apparently there's uh, there's some history on that guy that we'll get into later. So there's six people from memorable Miami Vice episodes. He's got a crew. Scorsese has a crew. Like they, they these guys, like they find they find their repertory company. Sean, are you going to be in the Return of Calderon two part uh, rewatchables <laughs> that we do? I I probably need to revisit that before I can weigh in. It's probably been 15 years since I saw it on cable. When did they? Where did they used to re air Miami Vice? Was it USA? Where could you watch it? It's on uh it's on Hulu right now I think or one of those Yeah but stars. like it was on it was on one of the cable channels for Yeah a while. when yeah. I was a kid it was on I think it was the USA network Is it that or like TBS yeah. yeah Yeah For the people out there if you want if you want a good deep dive if you're bored after 14 months of pandemic stuff you've run out of stuff watch the Miami Vice pilot then fast forward to Return to Calderon which is two parts just watch those four it's probably, I would say, three hours total. And if you don't have a good time, I don't know what to tell you. Still <laughs> never been a network television show like it. There's really nothing to compare no. it to. And Crockett, Don Johnson was the most overqualified person who's ever been on a show like that. I actually found out when I did the research, because I was curious to see if they looked at him for Manhunter. There's one thing in there about how the studio might have wanted him for it. But he tried to leave Miami Vice after season two to make movies. And then they ended up like overpaying him yeah, to they, get him they, to they stay basically. The truck. He was he's basically out. Any other uh, what's age the best for you guys? I mean, I just want to, we've talked about it already, but Dante Spinati is the cinematographer here and he worked on a bunch of Michael Mann movies and this is the work he does here is incredible. Like uh, Molly and Will, 
writhing around in total blue light in that house. They shot that during the day, but then gelled everything so that it looked like it was night, but that the water had sun sparkling on it. I and mean, it's just like next level genius shit. Sean, does anyone ride for cinematographers more than Chris? <laughs> he loves them. Sean! He loves the shots. I love the shots too. Blue in this movie, safety. Green, searching on a quest. Red, danger. Yep. Anytime you see those colors, that's what he's trying to tell you. It's very simple, but very effective. He wears a green tie when he goes to see Lecter for the first time. Yeah. How does how does the cinematographer rank against your guy Gordo? <sighs> Ooh. Tough one for you, Chris. I mean, that's that's a Sophie's choice. I don't know. <laughs> Gordo Gordo or Dante? I don't know. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah, noosh. Do you think um, do you think um Will Graham is the quintessential eighties cop? Like has he aged the best as who's your number one eighties cop? Crockett. I, I still Crockett. Feel, I have Crockett in Miami Vice. That's the that's the that to me that's the pinnacle. I still got Crystal and Running Scared. <laughs> <laughs> Those are good too. Yeah, uh, and uh, and Jack Cates, yeah, as my, our irascible semi-racist cop for Forty Eight Hours. My favorite, vaguely, he's not like a. My favorite cop of the eighties is still Jack Walsh from Midnight Run. And Jack Walsh, yeah, yeah. This would be a good special episode. Eighties, you might have to invite me on the big picture. <laughs> You want to do an 80s cops episode? Man, just do the 15 best cops ever in a movie. Movie, TV show. Sean, would your dad have notes on that episode? Uh, Yeah, he would say, as usual, anytime I've ever watched any cop-related piece of entertainment, he's like, that's bullshit. That's not how it is. It does not matter what it is. It, 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 It could be as brilliant as Homicide Life on the Street or as humorous as Midnight Run. He'd be like, that ain't how it is. My stepmother was that way with ER and Grey's Anatomy and basically any hospital show because she's an OBGYN. It's the same thing. So no, that, no, we don't do it that way. But the thing is like, if they ever made a TV show about like a digital media company, we would hate it. We would pick apart every of piece course. of it, right? Think about, the, think about The Wire. The Wire is the most acclaimed show of all time. We watched the first four seasons. We were like, well, this is modern Shakespeare. Fifth season journalism. We were like, yo, this season sucks. Yeah, this, fuck is, this. this is super dumb. No way this would happen. Uh, all right, we're going to take a break through the rest of the categories. This episode is brought to you by Sonic. You know what sounds good after a long day? Ice cream. I love ice cream. Right now is the perfect time to get some. Sonic has half-price shakes every night after 7 p.m. when you order online or in the app. Just think of it, all that creamy, soft serve, hand-mixed with your favorite flavors for half the price in any size Listen, a lot of people like goofy shakes. I like vanilla shakes. You can throw 40 flavors at me. You know what I'm going to order? You know what I love the most? Vanilla shakes. It's perfect because me and my family, at least once a week, we still all get ice cream together when we're together. Grab Sonic Half Price Shakes after 7 p.m. now. Exclusions apply. Available for a limited time only at participating Sonic Drive-Ins. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Vital Farms, keeping it bull free. We always wanted our kids as they were growing up to have stuff that came from the right places. Vital Farms is perfect for this. Here's how good Vital Farms is. You can go to vitalfarms.com slash farm and you can get a 360 degree peek at the actual farm where your eggs came from. Uh, it's a certified B corporation. They are devoted to improving the lives of people, animals, and the planet through food, Great taste. You can do fried, poached, scrambled. Vital Farms bet you can taste the difference. Food simply tastes better when you know where it came from. Shop the farm that's a certified B corporation and gives their hens 
the lifestyle they deserve. Vital Farms. Look for the black Vital Farms carton in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. All right, what's age the worst? So the title was originally Red Dragon, and then a lot of people had issues with it. Michael Mann wanted to keep it. Dino De Laurentiis, who I don't know if he was in a feud with Myra Kassar and Andrew Vajna at that point, but <laughs> or whether they was, all got yeah. along. That should be a ringer narrative podcast, just trying to figure out who, who all these people were. Those uh, guys definitely hung out in Cyprus. You know, like yeah. where, whatever happened, like those three guys. Or in a boat in Greece, something like that. Yeah. Uh, so Year of the Dragon came out in 85, produced by De Laurentiis. It bombed. And that made De Laurentiis say, we can't do dragons. So that's how they end up with Manhunter. I got to say, belatedly, I don't mind Manhunter, but Red Dragon makes way more sense as a title, I think. Um, All right, so not showing the Lecter-Graham incident, Red Dragon starts with it, and it's actually a really good scene. And it's really the only case for watching Red Dragon is just for that scene. On the other hand, we talked about why it's so important there's no violence in this movie until the end. I guess where I landed is I wish there had been the scene filmed, not in the movie, and now available on YouTube that we could watch, where they have the actual Lecter, uh, William Peterson. They just they have the whole thing and they both shoot each other. I think I would like to be able to watch this on YouTube. I just don't think that's what this movie is about. So like the opening shots of this film are obviously from the perspective. It's post post trauma. Yeah, it's but it's about the psychological trauma and the psychological scars that are left behind by violence as much as it is violence, although it's certainly that. And I just think that Will Will being in this state of like, I'm trying to recover from this is much more interesting to me than watching like a fresh-faced Will Graham get cut to pieces and then winds up in Captiva and then gets asked Mm. to come back. You get everything you would need from that scene in that scene on the driftwood on the beach where Jack. Well, that's why it's a smart cut. And that's why Brett Ratner looked at it and goes, hey, we should have those guys fight. I just wish it existed. I wish there was like some sort of You want the optionality, right. You know, just where they filmed it and it didn't work, I just would have been able to like to watch it. Um, another what's aged the worst for me is Lecter's prison cell in Silence of the Lambs. Ages the worst after you watch the Manhunter prison cell, which I think is weirdly more effective. They make it in Silence of the Lambs. They really try to it's make like it like a medieval spooky. dungeon. Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and um, which leads me to my next what's aged the worst. I think I would have included Migs in Manhunter <laughs> as a cameo. <laughs> Maybe maybe he could have thrown his body fluids at Will Graham as he was walking out. Maybe he's I, like I just, Freddie Lowndes' photographer. <laughs> right. It's, Migs, I, I think it's a miss that Migs wasn't in here. And then uh, here's my last one, Sage the Worst. 16 years later, William Peterson and Tom Noonan would meet again in the CIC, CSI episode, Abracadaver. It's great stuff. It's a thing that happened. <laughs> Tom Noonan, William Peterson reuniting on Abracadaver. Why did that have to happen, Chris? <laughs> I don't know. Couldn't Tom Noonan have said no? CSI is pretty, pretty good for procedural, though. Like those first good. few seasons are pretty good. Any other what's the worst for you guys? No, there's a lot of like behavioral stuff, like smoking in elevators. That's that's kind of gone by the wayside. I loved it. <laughs> yeah. I wish it would come back. Casting what ifs. De Laurentiis, he wanted Richard Gere, Mel Gibson, and Paul Newman. Man cast Peterson after seeing footage from To Live and Die in L.A., probably as he was suing William Friedkin. <laughs> uh, Hannibal Lecter, John Lithgow, Mandy Patinkin, William Friedkin, Brian Dennehy all considered, and apparently they talked to Dennehy, and then Dennehy recommended Brian Cox. 
So I watched an interview with Cox about this, and I've never seen this before, but Cox in the interview was like, yeah, you know, they were talking to Lithgow and Dennehy, and I was the right man. Like, it, it was weird for him to be recognizing the fact. Is a heat check? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and it, He was also, he's equally kind of sanguine about not getting Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. He's yeah, like, because he, him and Anthony Hopkins had the same agent, and they were like, yeah, and then, and then my agent called me and said Tony was up for this role of Quigley, and I was just like, "Well, that's fine." And then I'm just like, "Yeah." And then you fucking missed out on like a billion dollars. And yeah, Oscar. seriously. I, I gotta say, Lithgow would have been interesting. I'm happy where we landed, but I think Lithgow, and he ends up basically doing it on Dexter, and that was one of the best one season seasons we've ever had. I was gonna say Raising Kane. I feel like in Raising Kane, mm. he's basically doing it like five years later. Yeah, Lithgow could have done it. So David Lynch. Almost directed it and uh, did not like the story and backed out. And then, uh, I love this one. A then unknown, Ted Levine came to the rap party to visit his buddy William Peterson, his old friend from the Chicago theater scene. The Steppenwolf boys. Had a chance meeting with Michael Mann that led to him being cast in Crime Story and eventually becoming James Gum. <laughs> so there you go. And then showing back up in Vincent Hanna's squad and he... I feel like we should have the hater hotline where anytime James Gum is mentioned, we can just get Hater to come on for 10 <laughs> seconds and just do gum. Shri big fat lady. <laughs> Best that guy, aka the Joey Pants Award. I mentioned the Argentinian hitman on Miami Vice who played an FBI SWAT team member. Uh, his name is Jim Zubiena. He was the Southwest Pistol League champion. Man became fascinated by him because of how fast he could draw guns. That's how he ended up in this Vice episode. Uh, so he's a nominee. Do I, there, there's a bunch of that guys in this movie, and it was 35 years ago, so it's tough. But is Chris Elliott now count as a that guy for no. anyone under 35? Oh, um, I think he's Chris Elliott. He's pretty famous. That's how I feel. But do you guys think Stephen Lang is a that guy? I think he is. Uh, I personally do. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody on the FBI in the in that FBI conference room has that guy, like you know Dan Butler, who plays Jimmy, the the sure. um, the Prince guy. But yeah, I mean Lang Lang's pretty big now. I mean he's in Avatar. He right? was in Avatar. Yeah. So like he's yeah, been, so he doesn't count. But yeah, do Avatar people was know his big. name. You know, even though he was the vi and also if you look at him in this movie, you would never be able to tell that he's Freddy from from Manhunter versus the the villain in Avatar. Yes. We could go with the guy I had who was Crockett's first partner in Miami Vice. And then he's in this, that guy, he is like, to me, a classic, that guy. He's been in a million things. I don't know what his name is. I didn't even look it up. Vincent Hanna, give me all you got award. I, sorry, Peterson has to win this. He, he <laughs> dials it up a couple times. And there, there's a couple moments that I think are a little bit too big for him as an actor, to be honest. I, I haven't completely been picking nits, fucking disagree. Well, I'm, I'm just going to come out and say it. Okay. We're gonna have to, we're gonna have to fight about it. <laughs> what? Wait, where do you think he's overdoing it when he says, "You son of a bitch, you wanted them to see you," like that stuff? The scene when he attacks Freddy is just not great. That's not a great scene. When he fucking super throws him on a car and then he's like, "All right, let's go get an orange juice." Like, like that is just bizarre. Uh, I think the scene when he's the, when he's finally figuring out what happened and that they should go check the uh, the cans the, and he's touching the window. And he's like, oh, I, uh, uh, like I, I just feel like they needed one more. I just don't understand action. how if we're in a movie and we've got Noonan, Farina, Lang, we're going to be like Peterson's the one who's overacting. Well, I had Lang as for the Judd Nelson Award for uh, 
guy who's in a different movie. <laughs> he's in some mid-80s NBC cop pilot yeah. just dialing it up. And it's like, you're in a real movie, dude? Michael Mann's <laughs> directing this? What are you doing? <laughs> the, fu- the funniest scene in this movie is when he agrees to do the interview with Freddie. And Freddie says, how does working on this case affect your sex life? And Will Graham says, mine? It doesn't affect mine. It affects yours. Go fuck yourself. (laughs) (laughs) Michael Mann also has a very strange idea of like, like what kind of social lives journalists have. Cause he's like, and then like after hours, Freddie just has like two, two girls on his arms. Right. This guy is writing like the third story on the front page of like, star or the inquirer yeah. you know, I don't think he's like rolling out like that this was a weird era for them glamorizing the life of newspaper reporters which was not glamorous but they no. there there were other movies like that but Freddie's approach to journalism is completely like kind of I think fallen by the wayside like I was thinking like what would happen if once we're once they do like media availability in stadiums again, like you bring this vibe to like the Clippers locker room, like, hey, Kawhi Leonard, you are news, man. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm asking you the tough questions. How's your sex life? Dan <laughs> <laughs> uh, Waiters award is Tom Noonan eligible? He's in no, a he's, lot. He's of in scenes. an hour of this movie. Yeah, so I'm gonna say so. No. Is, uh, Farina, so is Farina in too much? I think Farina's in too much. I was gonna say. Possibly Joan Allen. Yeah. Cause that's kind of a nothing character, but she's really good and and you're and I'm completely convinced she's blind. I believe that she falls for this weirdo. And have there have there been performances by people where you're like, I'm not convinced this person's blind? Um, Val Kilmer and At First Sight. I was gonna say that, Bill. That's exactly what I was gonna that's say. Not, that's not a comedy. I don't know if you guys have He's seen that. So bad in it. Oh my god. <laughs> so bad. It's it's Listen, we're all in the Kilmer Hive. That's a tough one for, <laughs> oh, our, for our focus group. It's hilarious that you said that. Um, I, have we ever had such a low-key Dion Waiters winner? I mean, she's she's quite good in this movie, but it's a very obviously pretty yeah, quiet she's, performance. But she's got, she's oh, wait. Got, we can give this to Cox. He's in the movie for 10 minutes. Oh, right. Great. Yeah, Cox yeah, wins all right, this. Cox. My bad. Recasting couch. Chris, you're not going to like this. Are you taking my, my guy out of this movie? Richard Gere is Will Graham. Give me a fucking break. 1986 Richard Gere. Richard Gere, the first day he works in his life will be the, like, that. come on, are you kidding me? Richard Gere was a cop instead of William Peterson? First of all. I know internal affairs. You're going to talk to me about internal affairs now, right? Richard Gere's been good in movies. He just picks the wrong movies. I don't think, I think one of the reasons this movie didn't work was nobody knew who the fuck William Peterson was. And, you know, like, I think the last 35 of years of his career where he basically, he settles down as a CSI TV actor. Like, was he big enough for this part? Did we need like a Richard Gere, like a bigger, more famous actor to be in this movie? Let me see Richard Gere 86. Has a, let me ask you this about William Peterson. Has a working actor ever in his life hit it big the way that Peterson hit it big in his 50s? He, he has to wait until I mean, what year does CSI start? Like 2003? 2001, something like that. Yeah. I mean, what was he doing in the 90s? He's like the eighth lead in mediocre movies. He he just was not in a lot of movies. Chris, you got to come to grips with this one. He he came out of the gate super hot with a couple. It was like a little Tyreek Evans kind of start. I know, I know, I know. 25 and six on the Kings as a rookie. Whoa. thing, And then it's like, it really tails off there for 15 years. 
It's and then tough. he becomes the biggest movie star in the country. I mean, CSI was the biggest show biggest on television star, yeah. for, for the biggest TV star for, te- for 10 consecutive years. And now he's CSI going back to it. Show. They're, they're bringing it back as CSI Vegas with him and him and, and some of the original people. He's going back to the well? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Richard Gere, no? Sean, you get a tie-breaking vote. I got, I got upset, 1986 Bill, Richard Gere. Because I think that you're onto something. Now, he's coming off of Cotton Club there because that's a, that's a big disaster. But I think that you're you're on to something. I'll tell you what I was intrigued by was when you said Paul Newman was up for this. Like older Will Graham? That would have been pretty cool. I would have wow. been interested in that. So that would have been right around color money. Who, like all time, if you could grab anybody from any era and time machine them into this part, I think, I think like 1974 range Redford would have been really good in this. Too pretty. Too pretty? Mm-hmm. I mean, mid-60s Brando. Jesus. Oh, shit. Talk about like an internal performance. That's all Brando did. There's also, I th- I think that it would be a different character, but in terms of bringing the cerebral, really wiry aspect of this character, Marathon Man era Hoffman. Mm. Dustin Hoffman, right around I don't think that. he pulls off the opening scene in the Driftwood. The guy's got to be handsome for that. What about like 2016 Leo? Like departed Leo? You know who I was thinking no, like about? Like post-Revenant Leo. Like right after. He's a little older, still handsome. I feel like if you want to, want to do a modern day person, you know who'd be really good at this? Who's really good at performing without talking is Lakeith. He's really great Ooh, at like... That's a good one. Focused, kind of possessed. You're trying to figure out what's going on with him. That's really good. I like it. Uh, half faster in research. Noonan took up bodybuilding to prepare physically for the part. Um... Stayed in character at all times. I love when people do that. Um, stayed away from the cast members. And the atmosphere on the set was tense because everybody was afraid to go near him because it was like this six foot five guy convincing himself he was a serial killer. So Michael Mann, already an intense set because he's a maniac. And now you have this guy who's like, stay away from me. I'm a serial killer. Set. <laughs> Sounds like a hilarious set. Um, <laughs> Cox asked to audition with his back turned to the casting agents. Because they wanted, he wanted them to hear the power of his voice. Michael Mann um, did the Michael Mann thing. No surprise. Spent all that time with the serial killer, with the FBI, behavioral science unit, all that stuff. Sean, do you know how long Endegada de Vida is as a song? I want to say. Want to guess? Can I guess nine minutes and 42 seconds? What do you think, Chris? Nine minutes, yeah. 17 minutes and five Ooh, seconds. Jesus Christ. It's long. It came is out that, in 1968. The entire side of a record? Yeah. Iron Butterfly. 17 minutes, five seconds. So raising the question, how many times did the song play during that four hours Ugh. when she's in there and she's <laughs> looping over again? Um, they couldn't get permission to shoot on an airplane. So Michael Mann booked the airplane, got a lot of tickets, and they kind of gorilla shot it on the uh on the airplane with some of the seats they had. And then they they made the pa- plane's passengers and crew mollified them with Manhunter crew jackets, none of which are available on eBay. I looked. Um, the pool of blood forming around Noonan's character was corn syrup, but he was lying there so long he became stuck to the floor. Jesus. And was also convinced that he was a serial killer. So he was like, get this fucking, get me off this fucking floor. <laughs> had to have been terrifying. <laughs> William Peterson had trouble getting out of the character after the movie, which we hear sometimes. Um, and then they did the tattoos that they have in Red Dragon. They decided not to use them. Matt, Michael Mann said it seemed too corny. Yeah. 
but they had there's pictures of man putting of, the tattoos uh, on him. and man and all that stuff. So there you go. Apex Mountain Peterson movie Peterson. I'm going to mm-hmm. say yes. I I would say Peterson career Peterson is CSI. like you know yeah. Quentin Tarantino directing a CSI episode and like that being the biggest show on television. Yeah. Tom Noonan probably yes. It's just out it's there. The biggest characters ever. I'm played. just I'm just grabbing it. It's out there. Michael Mann, no. Joe Allen, no. Fire corpses on rolling desk chairs. Apex. What a what a what a day for those guys, huh? Their draft stock went up in Manhunter. <laughs> That's when we finally go back to the office. I'd like to try that with a dummy because we're gonna have a lot of room in the in the Spotify offices to just roll. Uh, That's good to dummies know. that are on fire down yeah. the uh, down the campus. I'll floor. alert HR on that one. Thanks. Criminal profiling. I'm going to say no. Hmm. So what is the Apex? I'd say CSI. I mean, people are like 25 million people. But they're more doing that. like forensic, like pathological, like pathology stuff where they're putting together what happened based on like how some somebody's body is. Like, I think, I mean. I think you, si- then you got to go silence because that movie made say. like $250 million and a bunch of Oscars. Yeah. And it got a DeVita. I'm going to say yes. Okay. Why not? Still live it on. When it, when it, when else is anyone ever talking about that song? Well, it's considered like one of the the. I mean, it's one of the creation myth songs of heavy metal. So you could make the case that that's its apex. That it when it was released, it basically inspired Black Sabbath and Metallica and all of these bands. So I don't the, the hmm, very little that's a good point. The little scene Manhunter, <laughs> uh, an obscure <laughs> serial killer drama from 1986, might not be Iron Butterfly's Apex Mountain. Yeah, Iron Butterfly probably like sold out Wembley, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we're like, you guys are fucking losers. <laughs> Being the last scene of Manhunter is as good as it gets for you. They were a one-hit wonder, though. I did some research on yeah. them because I, yeah. I want to see if they had any other songs. They were one of the original one-hit wonders. Uh, sprinting through a window, Apex Mountain, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think Axel Foley getting thrown out of a window is the Apex yeah. Mountain getting tossed, but jumping through a window, I'm probably gonna sprinting go, through the window. We'll agree. We'll agree. The funny Santa Bell, Santa Bell Captiva, Florida, Apex Mountain, for sure has to be. Yeah, I didn't even know what that place was. Cut off great T-shirts. Pretty pretty huge in the CR scenario. is going to challenge that tonight. He's going to throw on <laughs> six cut off gray t shirts and, and take a lot of selfies. All right, pick a nits. Let's just go here. How the how the how the fuck did he own this house? We were texting about this last night. It's it's just inexplicable. That's like even in 1986, that's like a four million dollar house. He's a fucking cop. So there are beach communities in this country where it's like you know normal people live close to the beach, right? Like, it's not, like, not every single thing is 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 Miami I guess beach in the mid-80s, it's more conceivable. Maybe his wife had some money. You think Molly's sitting on a, a family fortune? And that's why they have, they have a boat, you know, and they're just they're just throwing around fuck you money at Publix, buying a bunch of coffee? Oh, I, I by the way, I had Kim Greased in Apex Mountain. The answer is yes, because she had Miami Vice than this. I actually really liked her. She's great. I don't know why she didn't, uh, She might, uh, I don't know what happened with her. I like her in Chud. You guys seen Chud? Yeah, would have had her more stuff. Um, should they have cut the alternate ending that we all watched? So, okay, help me understand the difference here. What are the what? Do you know the specifics between the two yeah. endings? So he saves he saves Joan Allen's character. It goes right to back to the beach, and him being with his family again. And it's and like it's almost of, like a different movie when you know yeah. that that's not 
the director's cut has a different ending. When you watch this shot, it definitely feels like a note from the studio being like, we have to show that this guy recovered fully from this. Well, so for the people listening, the alternate ending does have the actual ending. It's just there's a scene between him hugging Joan Allen and saying, I'm Will Graham. And then the next scene is him showing up at the house of the guy, the the serial killer was watching those home movies. The next family who's going to murder, Will Graham shows up at the house because he wants to see them. And they're like, and they're kind of, at first they think he's an intruder. Then he's like, oh, you're the guy who saved us. Hey, thank you. And he's just super weird. He's got a black eye. And he's just basically like, do you want to come in? No, I just wanted to see you. And then it goes to the beach. I actually think that worked. I think they should have kept it. I totally agree. I thought that was brilliant. I thought that would have given us so much more understanding of the fact that for Will Graham to get out of the mentality of the serial killer is really hard for him. And that that was something that was like torturing him throughout this entire process. And it indicates that like there's a moment when he's standing in front of this couple who he has ostensibly saved where you're thinking to yourself, is he going to kill these people? Like, is (laughs) he going to take over the mission (laughs) of the tooth fairy? And it's, it just makes them, it makes the movie more complex. It's interesting. I think I would have liked that movie. Yeah. It would. I mean, Oh God, Will Graham snapped. He's now the (laughs) tooth fairy junior. (laughs) That's it. Any other pick and nits, Chris? Yeah, I got one. Has Michael Mann ever been on a fucking first date? Like, <laughs> like we are now pretty deep into his his career. And in like multiple movies, absolutely brutal first dates. First of all, like, for as a dollar, I'd taking Joan Allen to go pet a tiger. <laughs> Neil and eat Neil being like, "What do you? Why you? Why you so interested in what I'm reading and what I do? You know, like in his book about metals." And then when they do get along, he's like giving her this fucking weird soliloquy about algae in the water. What are the? There's some other. What's going on with this big romance? And then see, and what about this big romance and thief? So it's like every single time he hooks, like some guy hooks up with a girl in a Michael Mann movie. It's like such a journey. I'm into it. Last of the Mohicans even gets a little. That's right. He saves her life, and then they just like make out. It's just like they they never have like a normal first date. What about Colin Farrell and Gong Lee getting on this fucking cigarette (laughs) boat and driving? Oh yeah, they they go to Cuba. (laughs) Yeah. That's crazy. That's a good one. Yeah, they never like, you want to go to Applebee's and have like an app plate. You know what I mean? Michael Mann's First Dates is an amazing podcast series. That would just be great. Each yeah. episode is the crazy first so date in almost all of his I, movies. You're, you're a lovely lady, so I, I take you to a diner and I talk to you about metals. <laughs> then we get the, the Learjet flight of Birmingham. Well, we, learned, we learned in the thief research that the, the booth that shot the famous James Conn scene was where Michael Mann had stopped with his wife when and they ended up getting married. So... Obviously, that was such an awesome first date or whatever date for him that he's now looked at what's the flip side of a bad first date or I don't know. I am a true blue kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Mann's I made $150 dates. slacks. <laughs> Coming up on Tuesday, the launch of Chris Ryan's new podcast, Michael Mann's First Dates. It's a Spotify original. And we just like make Heifetz go on Michael Mann first dates. <laughs> Heifetz, you have to take a girl <laughs> to go pet a tiger, <laughs> a sedated tiger. Next category, could this be remade as a 10 episode Netflix show? Um, well, it, it, you know, it was to some extent with Hannibal. Right. It's an NBC show. Yeah. I got kind of excited for the thought of somebody redoing Manhunter on like uh, HBO Max or Netflix. Have you watched Clarice at all, Bill? I did not. I boycott. Once I found out Lecter wasn't in it, I was out. 
It's like, figure it out. If DC Comics and all those places were able to figure out the superhero shit, we can figure out Hannibal Lecter and Clarice. What the fuck are we doing? Are we, but like, are we good? Like, I feel like we're good on Hannibal. You know, I feel like- Yeah, I'm good. We've done enough. We've told a lot of stories. The the likelihood of the TV series with Mads Mikkelsen being good was like one in 100 and it was good. Like, I think we can wrap it up now. We're good on Lecter stories. Probably unanswerable questions. What is life like if Brian Cox got the Silence of the Lambs part? It's kind of like the Laramie Tunsil trade for movies in the early 90s. Right, right. You mean like, dude, does global warming stop? Like what Like what potentially, like the butterfly effect? Well, does Brian Cox basically market correct that Anthony Hopkins at that point? Because you could argue Anthony Hopkins market corrected Brian is, Cox. Is Anthony Hopkins the star of succession? Holy That's shit. That's what I'm saying. It's a fucking sliding doors thing. Brian Cox definitely not on succession because he would have been too famous from Silence of the Lambs who would run the Oscar. Or does the movie and then not see in the bear movie? But but does the movie not work as well because it's Brian Cox and not Anthony Hopkins? Right. That's possible. Does he end up in the bit is he in the edge with Alec Baldwin and and uh the guy from Oz? So is, is Hopkins a couple years older than than Cox? It feels that I feel way, like right? they're around the same age. Is Brian Cox and the father getting robbed of an Oscar this year? Oh, let's not go there. He's amazing. Hopkins is amazing in the father. Brian Cox is born in 46 and Hopkins is born in 37. So he's got almost oh, a, de- wow. almost yeah, a okay. decade on Because I was going to say, I d- it's hard for me to imagine Hopkins in succession. He's old. He's, he's old. Older dude. Well, on the other hand, that succession guy is supposed to be super old. Yeah. 84. A- Any other unanswerable questions for you guys? Did Will get paid by the FBI to come back? Yeah, they don't. In these movies, they never talk about salary, and nobody seems interested in money. But say, oh, yeah. I'm do this. It's got. I got. I need 200k if you're getting me for a month. I mean, this is really the worst job in the universe, right? Like, it's just to like sit seems like it. Yeah. in the disgusting pits of hell with like the 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 demor- most like evil people. Yeah, yeah. Spend all your time looking at photos of horrifying murder. but you know back then it's like maybe he got paid like seventy two thousand, but he had like a company car you know like it was just like <laughs> the, the, there were some perks you think he had a sob yeah my only other unanswerable question is did you guys think that um and this is really more of an observation the home movies are really creepy like the yeah. home i think because of the way that we see them in the in manhunter they're weird but like like who's filming one of them? Because like it's all the family is in it, but like it's just like this like oh it's, it's like slice. a maid. Yeah, it's really strange. But like those those home movies are are very strange. I don't I don't really feel like that was how people were really like. I just got a camcorder. Say hi into the camera for two seconds. Would you rather get knifed to death right away with a broken piece of mirror, or you have to listen to Enigata Devita for like five straight hours, but then you get rescued by Will Graham? Would you rather just get murdered right away? <laughs> I have some questions about the mirror. So I feel like Dollar Hyde punches the mirror and, he, yeah. and then he gets a piece of glass from the mirror. But his hand's fine. And then he goes to the sink and he breaks the glass to get another smaller piece of glass. And then he doesn't do anything with it. And then it feels like 20 minutes go by, but he's still holding the piece of glass like to Joan Allen's face. And you think he's going to do something, but he never does. Like what... <laughs> What is Dollar Hyde doing there? There's some time continuity stuff because they hop on a plane. He's already broken the glass. 
and he's just, I guess, basically There's deciding a bunch whether of to like, kill or not. I, like, did you guys also get confused about like, are they in Washington or Atlanta or Chicago at various yeah, points? I don't think we're supposed to know. Okay, yeah, it's confusing. What piece of memorabilia would you want from this movie? I would like the note that he makes Freddie read. And then at the end of the season, when the Nets win the championship, I will read that note about James Harden. Who <laughs> <laughs> do you have, Sean? Um, can I get that house in Captiva? That's yeah. great. Ken, that's that's eligible. I have the uh the the giant piece of driftwood that they sit on in the opening scene. It'd be fucking cool. Just put that in the backyard. What is that? Hey, you ever seen Manhunter? It's the driftwood from the beginning. Uh, who that, in the movie? That's the creepiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> who won the, the movie? Driftwood from Manhunter. Uh, man. I have man. Man. Yeah, he directs the shit out of this movie. We didn't do best quote, which I only wanted to mention just because of uh, of when 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 Will Graham says uh, we tried so sodium amytal on him three years ago to find where he buried a Princeton student and he gave him the recipe for potato chip dip. <laughs> <laughs> and then every, all the other best quotes are just anytime Farina opens his mouth. Yeah. The Farina Sans. He's a special one. I like also uh, all the crazy dollar hide, you know, you owe me all. <laughs> There's a couple <laughs> of really good dollar hide lines. He really dials it up in the uh the scene with Freddie. He has some good ones in there. I was gonna read the letter at the start of the podcast, but it's actually too creepy. <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we did the insider for rewatchables 99 on luminary. So now we only have, unless we re we do, we could do a Taylor Swift and just redo the insider of this podcast. <laughs> Every single man. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just do, uh, we just do the exact same podcast we did on luminary, but we change our voices slightly. <laughs> um, and then Ali and black hat and, and then public enemies, I think Ali and that's de- it. is definitely a rewatch. I, I that, agree. Yeah. Ali is like worthy of a conversation. Even if it's an imperfect movie, there's so much to talk about. Yeah, if we ever do, especially if we bring back flawed rewatchables at any point. The first eight minutes of Ali are flat out incredible. Among the best things he's ever done. Is yeah, like the yeah, first yeah. The Sam Cooke opening of Ali is unbelievable. It's funny. I look at Ali now and I think like, that's so clearly an eight episode splashy Apple project where he could have done all the stuff he wanted to do instead of like just trying to condense it into this two hour movie set with over a 10 year period where I, I, it was just too ambitious. Yeah. We should do that one. All right. We'll do that one. Michael Mann, the star of the rewatchables, Chris Ryan, Sean Fennessy. Great to see you guys as always. We'll see you next time. That's it for the rewatchables. We have uh, a good one next week. It's time. It's time to get out of the action genre sphere for for one week here so we're gonna do mrs doubtfire next week which is available all over the place it made the second most money of any movie in 1993 it was an absolute monster and was in the news lately so we'll be doing that one see you next time.